Hey there, everyone. This is Dan Fagella here at Tech Emergence, where we interview entrepreneurs, researchers, and investors in the domain of emerging technology. And we've been doing a lot about virtual reality lately. We've talked about three-dimensional treadmills and more immersive body suits and AR gloves and things along those lines. And today, I'm lucky enough to have a very exciting VR project uh, to talk about with Mr. Max Reiner, who's uh, the head of project. At, uh, of Birdly, which is a specific VR project at the Zurich University of Arts, and we'll get more into what Birdly is today. But Max, how are you? All right, hi, great. Good, good to be able to have you on. For the folks that haven't uh, that haven't seen Birdly, guys, if you want to Google just Birdly, it's exactly how it sounds, Bird L Y. You will see a pretty cool, full blown um, kind of bird almost like a bird suit or a bird table that that folks lay down on with a fan in front of it where people can actually uh hop on mount and, and be in a fully immersive experience as if they're flying through the skies as a bird with wings um and and the full gambit and the full experience of kind of the wind at their face and and max as head of project over there obviously you've you've been involved in in not only kind of designing the the experience that's on people's face but also the experience that they're going through with their body Talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the lessons you've learned about what makes an experience immersive. It seems like Birdly's pretty high up there. What what did you learn about creating an immersive VR experience there? Uh, like I mentioned before, most of the people have experience of visual immersion and auditive immersion. So they hear 3D, they see 3D, and uh, we were interested actually to address the whole body in this kind of immersive experience. And the funny fact was actually in the beginning we made some little tests and we were always a little bit aware of the sickness you get when you have a very high degree or uh, of immersion. Yeah. And there are a lot of tests. So if you know the Oculus, for example, you have the roller coaster test of this and that. And some people get sick, some people get uh, not as much sick. And so for us, uh, with a bird flight simulator where you really saw through the sky and can dive down. And uh, go up and all these kind of uh, things, we are really concerned that we can tackle this kind of stuff. So uh, we made our tests, which were really difficult actually, and <laughs> we had very bad feedback sometimes, we really got super sick. But what we found out was actually um, more or less that if the visuals are in sync with the body movement, then it gets much better actually. It's sometimes like if you're driving a car, when you're a passenger, then you get a little bit sick, but if you're the driver, you feel much more comfortable. Ah. So you don't get that sick when you're the driver, hopefully. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And so what we actually did was uh, we explored where's the border, where's the brink where you start to get sick and where you feel comfortable and where are you really convinced that what you see and what you feel, what your sensory input will tell you is reality for you. And so the experiments evolved about the, uh, the certain amount of input we can give and the certain amount of feedback uh, or reaction you will have and feel what's reality and what's the immersion. And there we found uh, a lot out that actually you don't always have to, to make everything real. So for example, you don't have to address the senses one-to-one as you would do in reality. You just have to trigger the, at the right moment the right impulses and the body is more or less convinced. So we are very, uh, very tolerant actually. Got it. Okay. And and uh, I've always, you know, I've heard a good deal about that. I'm one of those folks that don't necessarily get uh, car sick or plane sick or any kind of sick. So when I've been in Oculus, 
I haven't experienced it. But from what I hear, and it sounds like you're you're saying the same thing, um, you know, if, if things are a little bit off, if, you know, you turn your head and there's a bit of lag, or if you move your right arm and it doesn't quite move and it doesn't really have kind of a volitional effect in the reality that you're in, that's when the sickness starts to kick in. It sounds like it sounds like non-immersion, in other words, really not believing that this is the real reality, and nausea and discomfort are sort of one and the same. Is that safe to say with both your body and your vision? Yeah. So I, I go strongly in that direction. Of course, I'm not um, medically trained in that field yeah, or yeah. a neuropsychologist in that. But what I experienced was really that uh, when you're in sync, then it's much more believable and just take it like this. So if you're getting drunk and your body slowly starts, uh, you slowly get double vision. And <laughs> you're rotating, everything rotates around you. You're definitely going to get sick. Maybe that's also a reaction from the body just to save you and you uh, pull out the poison from your body when you throw up or something yep. like this. And what we experience here with virtual reality is also some kind of dis dissonance where you see and feel stuff which you actually not expect. And this makes, you really we makes it really weird. Oh. For example, in our simulator, you are also able uh, to hit buildings or to crash. And most of the people, as we didn't simulate then the impact, it would be obviously mostly deadly. So we didn't yeah. Want to <laughs> yeah, that would not be good at all, yeah. But the people are still very disappointed because every one of them expects actually an impact. And if you don't get the impact, the body still reacts to it and feels <laughs> a little bit off. Yeah. Often, when I did my, uh, my studies in a cave system, in a 3D cave system uh, in Japan, uh, when I had an internship, there uh, most of the VR demonstrations uh, had a very rigid physical system that you cannot penetrate walls or polygons and all these kind of graphics were ne never done like this that you uh, get accepted by the graphics. But I somehow programmed a, a bug and at the end you always get uh, penetrated by polygons, by graphics and uh, shapes and all this, which is very interesting because you really always shake up and have the feeling um, you get stabbed or something. Yeah. Really you back and so and it even went that far that if you see a mist uh, you could feel actually the mist uh, on your face it somehow the mist was not there it was just a particle system but somehow uh, you got really the impression that somehow it gets wet or humid oh wow yeah that's that's very interesting now so what were were there any other factors that sort of contributed to the experience being um, convincingly immersive, you know, people being kind of sucked into that world as a, a bird, or even in your other experiments, you know, it, it seems to make sense. I think it'll be make a lot of logical sense for the folks tuned in. Like, okay, you know, if, if when I really flap my arms, you know, I really go up, and when I really turn my wrists like this, and my feathers do this, it you know really turns me this way. And if I if I feel the fan on my face and I, I see everything really clear, just like I would in real life or close to it, you know, you know, the more the more real it is and the more responsive the world is, the more quote unquote immersive. Were there any other little interesting findings of what sort of convinced people to get sucked into this world? Any other factors that go into, you know, when somebody really crosses that threshold of being in this new world? Little kind of uh, yeah, additional factors. All factors have to play together that you don't break the illusion because if the curtain falls down, 
then yeah, the whole uh, immersion just shatters. So you have to watch out for everything that sense. So, for example, uh, no, I mentioned before, um, we also embody actually a bird. So you have to give the right clues actually for a bird. So, for example, if you look around, then you see you need to see your own body, but not as a human. You have to see your wings, your tail, and all this kind of stuff. And we had to build this in. So when you flap your wings, we also build in resistance that you really have the feeling that you push through air. If you look on your hands, then you will see wings. And if you turn or navigate, then you, you see how the wings will change. And, and at the same time, we use a, a wind feedback system, which is actually uh, correlated to the physical engine, which uh, tells you how fast you are flying. That's cool. Okay, got it. So it sounds like, you know, I like, you know what I, I really like? I always like a good quote from an interview, Max. And, and the one that I'm, I'm kind of dialing into right now is that if you want an immersive VR experience, you can't break the illusion. You can't break it with the fan and the wind. You can't break it with the wind resistance. You can't break it with the vision. You can't break it with your arm moving and that actually doing something to your motion in, in the game itself. It's just, a, it sounds like it's about tightening up all those corners. Yeah, and for me it's somehow like a good uh, theater play. So everything has to be more or less convincing, you know. You can see maybe a story like sometimes, I don't know if you ever see Adventure Time with Philip J. I, no, no, I haven't. But, so the stories are really abstract, but somehow you get drawn into it because the storyline works out at the end, you know. And so that's also with immersion. You can do crazy stuff, which is not possible, but if you don't break uh, the consistency of this kind of a story, then it works. Yeah, jeez. So has to work uh, together, and you should. And, and I don't say that it has to be 100% realistic. For example, if we have the platform, we could dive down, but visually you maybe dive down 90 or no, 80 degrees, but the platform wouldn't do that because you would just fall off the simulator yep, yep. and would uh, mix you up. <laughs> and so we just give the right impulse, but we don't have to do the same movement and all these little, little factors just play together then. Got it. I, I, yeah, I, I like the uh, I like the idea. Don't don't break the illusion, and that has to do with really every sense that's involved and every element of it. And and obviously, there's folks working away in all the four you know are all the many corners of a virtual reality from the physical side of things, the uh, so, audio and uh, circumstance. Actually, that if you use it, so if you give a feedback for a certain kind of sense, you have to deliver it. Otherwise, if it if you never give a feedback in that. A certain setup, then maybe. But if you want to get feedback in that direction, for example, if you have a moving platform, then the new moving platform has to work out in all cases. So yeah. If it stops, then it's weird. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Well, it's like you know, most most folks, you know, you could probably get some degree of an immersive experience with just a headset VR, and I'm sure many folks have sort of worked on things along those lines, playing a game or something. But yeah, if if, you know, you have any sense involved, you know, if you're throwing in, you know, you couldn't have the audio work for some things and not for other things. You couldn't have, you know, the, the if you're walking on, you know, a VR treadmill, you couldn't have it work in some cases, but not in others. Because like you said, you know, you're relying, you're kind of leaning on that pillar of the illusion. And if that one falls, it sort of wrecks the whole, you know, real that was, experience. That was also my example with this animation movie. 
know, you see an animation movie and you totally know that's not a real human, that's not a real scene, but you get drawn into the story and then you believe what happens in that moment. That's also the same, I think, for virtual reality setups where you are going for a rush and you have to lay it down and show the, uh, the visitors or the participants what's possible and then stay in that story. Big time. And, and, and Max, just because you're kind of working away in this domain pretty specifically and, and on a, a rather unique project, I imagine you have a, a decent lay of the land as to sort of where VR is going and all the different uh, developments in VR with these haptic suits and gloves and treadmill stuff and, and uh, you know, you guys are using fans in people's faces, all, all these different elements of sort of VR and immersion. Where do you see VR really kind of making its biggest steps forward into more mainstream in the next five or ten years. Right now there's a few people with Oculus. You know, there's there's schools with the Oculus. I was at Brown University recently taking a tour, and I'll be speaking there in the coming week, actually. But they, they've got their own lab with their Oculus. You guys have them over in Zurich. Some, some folks who are nerdy gamers are sort of digging in. Where do you think it's going to kind of hit in the big time in the next maybe five to ten years, if at all? I think this time it will work. Because uh, we have all the, because, uh, compared to the first wave of virtual reality, think about the CPU power we, we had there, or the GPU power was not even existing, actually. You had a random farm for 100,000 from Silicon Graphics, which nobody could pay, and which had not even the performance of a laptop today. And now we have all the stones together to, uh, to, uh, to build this. And I definitely think in the area of entertainment, that's quite obvious for gaming, or even uh, media entertainment, this will shake up the whole business quite much, I think, or even if the, in the area of telepresence. In the area of what did you say, that last one? Telepresence. Oh, telepresence. Okay, so you believe, well, gaming, yeah, gaming, I guess, is a clear application. You know, there's going to be plenty of really cool games where you can shoot real-looking zombies and, and kind of walk around, stuff like that, and, and, I, and I think that gaming will, um, as I know it has in other domains, you know, like, for example... Uh, the 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 connect that gaming system there that kind of tracks physical motion. I know that's really forwarded a lot of different robotics projects very far out of gaming. So I think I think gaming as a commercial market will drive um, innovation to a great extent. You had talked about telepresence. Where do you see that first taking place? Where do you see that first uh, really picking up? You know, people starting to replace their physical presence in an office with a kind of rolling about robot, um, what, what, where do you see telepresence actually hitting the ground running? Yeah, that's definitely something, but actually also you could imagine maybe that you control machines in a different way, like for example a, a truck, a caterpillar or a crane or something like this. But this may be also a future vision, but think about if you have robots in a factory, how do you train them or how do you try um, to program them? Maybe you could uh, actually even program them from the first perspective. So there's a lot of options. It's not uh, that clear, but... No, I, I, can, I can see it, though. I mean, that's not that far out. I mean, I think that's a very... Uh, that's actually a quite unique and, and probably viable opportunity in the future. So that's... That's sort of part of it. But yeah, in terms of telepresence, where do you see that maybe, you know, uh, happening or really, really kind of being applied meaningfully? Yeah, it could be also in entertainment, but obviously also in high-risk areas where um, human life is threatened, but you still need surveillance or checkups there in these kind of cases. And so it would be much better than just send... Uh, 
yeah, uh, a person in which with a lot of um, safety regulations and a lot of um, suits to protect them, then you maybe just better send robot, and it's much safer for the human at all. Got it. Yeah, and and so okay. So in terms of telepresence, instead of controlling, let's say, some kind of a uh, a rover, you know, in a dangerous minefield or something via a screen and a and a remote control, like maybe they are now. Um, controlling it in more of an immersive yeah. VR experience, where you really are in the you're 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 sharing the experience of that machine, and you can control it maybe a little bit more minutely and volitionally. But you do this anyways now the, with the plasticity actually of your brain. Actually, when you drive even a car, you get the feeling that you embody the car in one way or another. No? Yeah. Example, bump in, in another car when you're parking, then it hurts a little, I think. Yeah, no, no, no. It's 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 very curious, and and I know that they've done some research, Max. And I don't know if you've seen any of this, but I I've uh, I forget who I was interviewing not all that long ago on the show here talked about some some project where they were embodying a a lobster. So these people were embodying a lobster, and they had more legs, you know, than a human being does. You know, it's not. It's not a. It wasn't like a bird with with two wings or whatever there and, and legs. It was you know a lobster with a bunch of different legs, and these legs were controlled by like abdominal muscles and, and intercostal muscles and really strange sort of unique muscles that we normally don't use for anything meaningful. But in a virtual reality, people were able to move around and use those muscles and and just adopt them. You know, pull them right into. Kind of their motor cortex and, and use them as if they were real, and I think that uh, that 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 opens up some pretty wide gateways as to what virtual reality can do in terms of kind of merging us into new experiences. I think also that's really interesting, and the example I brought before with caterpillars and all this kind of stuff, it's also it doesn't resemble a human body, but not at it's all. To done the job, and you can control it. Now you need a certain level of abstraction. You can train it, you get it, but it's maybe better and more um, humane, or you just get better results if you would embody the whole thing through this out-of-body experience. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like I like the idea of telepresence as sort of a um, um, uh, an initial rollout of VR outside of the gaming domain. The gaming domain is obviously the easy one to sort of yeah. to pick apart. In terms of where else telepresence? So you had mentioned telepresence. Maybe we're talking about some kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, in the space station they'll have a robot and somebody could sort of embody this robot. It's clearly very dangerous to move about in space and it's hard to pack that much food and all that stuff. Um, so there's something like that, you know, minefields. Um, do you see telepresence, as a last question here, Max, do you, do you see telepresence anywhere else in the working world? Any traction or ideas about where, where else telepresence might pick up out of kind of the minefield dangerous environment stuff? Yeah, obviously you can also use it just to control stuff. You know, for example, if you have a, a big uh, transport ship which is automated, but sometimes you need human intelligence to get further. Maybe you even have robots there, but sometimes you just need a human to decide. Then you just link in through that. Got it. Yeah, and and the uh, I, I'm I mean, it would be a lot of rabbit holes to really explore it, but I think our ability to you know, that brain plasticity capacity you had talked about to embody whatever it is that we are inside of once we're convinced that it's our experience, I think that it really cracks open a lot of doors to sort of extend what the human potential is 
and uh, and maybe our own productivity and our own possibilities in the coming decades. I don't think we'll see anything too drastic in the next five yeah. or ten, maybe. But um, but there's there's certainly some hallways to walk down. But anyway, I appreciate your thoughts on sort of what the the near future might look like. And Max, because we're at the end of the interview, where could people go uh, to learn more about you guys and the Birdly Project uh, with VR? Yeah, so they can definitely go to my webpage. It's maybe not the most uh, uh, current one. I will update it a little bit, but just go to birdly.zhdk.ch. Got it. There are news about it, and uh, we are going to make an exhibition uh, most also at the moment this year in Europe, but in January we will be back in the States. So with one venue uh, in the States, or two or three venues in the States, where you have the chance to see or experience Bradley life. Yeah, where, where are you going to be, Max, just so I know? Uh, we're just planning it out, so it's not... Okay, <laughs> well, hey, be in, touch, be in touch when you know. How about that? And I'll make sure I put it up on Facebook or Twitter and let everybody know. Cool. Very good. Hey, Max, thank you again so much for taking the time here on Tech Emergence. All right. Thank you. Too. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>